Kid Review Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at TuneReview, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-E-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 this is from the Herald on Wednesday the 15th of March 2023. This is from the news section. The headline reads, Abuse Victim Speaks Out Amid Calls for Action. This article is by Deborah Anderson. She was sexually abused by a relative and let down by those who should have been caring for her and nurturing her through life. Dragged into the care system and having to give evidence about her traumatic and terrifying abuse as a teenager makes it even more remarkable that the 26-year-old victim will today speak out at a conference to raise awareness of domestic abuse of those living with a disability. However, surprisingly, there are no figures for abuse of those with learning disabilities specifically recorded. It is why the Scottish Commission for People with Learning Disabilities, the SCLD, says the invisibility of women with learning disabilities when it comes to policy and legislation to eradicate gender-based violence in Scotland should be highlighted as an issue that must be addressed. The charity says this is underpinned by the fact that there are no figures available to help tackle the problem since the Scottish Government and local authorities do not collect consistent data about women with learning disabilities who have experienced gender-based violence. In a report to be launched at the conference to address gender-based violence and learning disability today, it reveals women and girls with learning disabilities in Scotland are being regularly targeted and subject to abuse and violence by a wide range of male perpetrators. The report, unequal, unheard, unjust, but not hidden anymore, reveals the extent of abuse experienced by women with learning disabilities in Scotland. This includes exploitation by the sex industry. The research, which took place over one year and was funded by a Scottish Government programme, was carried out by SCLD alongside People First Scotland, a collective self-advocacy organisation run by and for adults with learning disabilities. Diagnosed with cerebral palsy when she was just 19 months old, the young woman has had to fight for her independence and found her inner strength. When she was 13, she was diagnosed with scoliosis of the spine. She suffered torment by relatives who put her down and stripped her of her confidence with verbal and physical abuse and was sexually abused when she should have been protected by those she trusted. It was only when a concerned relative stepped in, police got involved, that action was taken. The case did eventually come to court, but the perpetrator received just a three-year community service sentence and was placed on the sex offenders register. She wasn't aware that it was abuse until police began to question her. The woman, who cannot be identified, said, I suffered verbal abuse which left me anxious and worried and I was constantly put down. I had little self-esteem or confidence. I was young at the time and I didn't know what was right or wrong 
and when police became involved, it was explained to me that I had been sexually abused. I suppose, in a way, I had been brainwashed. I had to give evidence to police, and that was provided by video link to the court. My abuser was never jailed, and I don't think I got justice. How could it be a community service? People tried to explain it to me, but I couldn't understand why he wasn't tagged or sent to prison. Since then, the 26-year-old has found her voice and her conference and will address SCLD conference today in Glasgow. The young woman added, I'm no longer in the care system and have a job in community work helping people. I've also written about my experiences, which I think has helped me. I am proud of myself to be able to speak at the conference and hope to raise awareness or urge people to come forward. Conversations shouldn't happen behind our back and people need to see us for who we are. We are unique and deserve to be heard. The report drew upon existing evidence on the topic. A small-scale study in Glasgow, Wise Women 2015, found that 73% of the participating disabled women had experienced domestic abuse and 43% had been sexually assaulted. In 2018, Engender looked at global rates of gender-based violence and suggested that 90% of women with learning disabilities have been subject to sexual abuse, with 68% experiencing sexual abuse before turning 18. International studies demonstrate that people with a learning disability may be 10 to 12 times more likely to experience sexual assault than their non-disabled peers. That was from the US Department of Justice 2015. SCLD's research reveals that often women with learning disabilities don't report gender-based violence because they fear negative assumptions about their abilities and heavy-handed and inappropriate legislative processes such as guardianship, adult support and protection and child protection. The charity believes from the interviews they conducted as part of the research that women and girls with learning disabilities are more likely to experience abuse than their non-disabled counterparts because of their perceived vulnerability and exposure to potential perpetrators, including family members, care staff and partners. Michelle Mayer, gender-based violence project advisor for SCLD said, We know from the women we work with that gender-based violence is a huge issue. However, we have uncovered a glaring void when it comes to Scottish statistics, as well as the pressing need for data to be collected. Policy and legislation has to change for women to feel confident about coming forward. We found that it can take some time for women with learning disabilities to recognise what has happened to them and report the abuse due to lack of appropriate relationship, sexual health and parenthood education being provided. This is compounded by the fact that if women do decide to come forward, they may not be believed. The fact that they do not have the same access to support and services as non-disabled women in the same situation is a massive problem, a violation of human rights and a barrier to justice. Victimisation and abuse, says the report, also takes place online, with men adding women to so-called sex groups on social media platforms. This could also lead to them being abused in person. When it comes to the police and other professionals, states the report, they often lack the training to work with women with learning disabilities and perpetrators are very rarely prosecuted and convicted. Ms Mayor added, We recommend a number of measures, including the Scottish Government establishing a national advocacy service for disabled women, including women with learning disabilities, who have experienced gender-based violence to help them access support and justice. There's a lot being done to raise awareness of and address gender-based violence towards women, but it's clear there is a huge gap in policy 
legislation and support when it comes to violence against women and girls with learning disabilities. A Scottish Government spokesperson said, violence against women is a fundamental violation of human rights and is totally unacceptable. They added, the Scottish Government is fully committed to tackling this issue. We are currently implementing Weekly Safe, Scotland's strategy for preventing and eradicating violence against women and girls. SCLD is funded through delivering Equally Safe to ensure that women and girls with learning disabilities and the services who support them better understand and are more able to recognise, report and address gender-based violence. We will continue working in partnership with SCLD and People for Scotland, who facilitate the Scottish Government's Gender-Based Violence and Learning Disability Steering Group, to explore the findings of this report. Scottish Government's representatives at the conference will carefully consider discussions and take in the findings on board. That article was by Deborah Anderson. This is from the Herald on Wednesday the 15th of March 2023. This is from the news section. The headline reads, Stackax Ridge, runner rescued after fall on Isle of Arran mountain. This article is by Emma Sabojack. A hill runner has been left with multiple injuries after a significant fall on the Isle of Arran. Rescue crews were called out to the north buttress of Stackart Ridge, which lies north of Goatfell at 3pm on Tuesday. The runner fell a significant distance and was airlifted to hospital. Arran Mountain Rescue Team, MRT, wrote that cloud cover lifted shortly after the call, allowing the HM Coast Guard Rescue 199 to access the casualty. It is understood the person was flown to Presswick Airport before being taken to Air Hospital. The MRT said, thankfully the cloud lifted shortly after the call, which allowed the Rescue 199 to drop their winch man down to the casualty to start treatment, before picking up several team members and dropping them on the ridge. The winch man and team members packaged the casualty before he was winched on board and flown to hospital. Thank you to everyone for their help, and we wish the casualty a speedy recovery. The article was by Emma Sabojack. This is from the Herald on Wednesday the 15th of March 2023. This is from the news section. The headline reads, Views sought on student housing plans for ex-MNS in Glasgow. The article is by Emma Sabojack. Glasgow's former Sucky Hall Street Marks and Spencer store could be used to house around 500 students in the city, according to updated plans. Views are now being sought on a purpose-built student housing and retail complex. Developers also plan to bring back the former arcade and provide a public path linking Suckill Street and Renfrew Street. The recreation of the former Wellington Arcade will provide a publicly accessible connection. The upper levels of 172 Suckill Street would include a spacious rooftop terrace and garden, with the developers and operators fusion students aiming to create student hotel life concept. Commercial units will fill the ground floor to maintain activity at street level. M&S had occupied units since 1935, before the retailer shut down the location in April last year. Members of the public have been invited to join an in-person consultation session on March the 23rd at the Maldron Hotel between 2.30pm and 7pm. An online session will take place between 3pm and 7pm on March 28th on the development's website. It follows an initial public consultation held in November 2022. 
a spokesperson for Fusion Student said, We are delighted to be bringing forward updated proposals to the local community as part of our ongoing consultation process. Through the delivery of quality accommodation, carefully thought out public realm spaces and commercial units, we remain confident that the proposals would enhance this historic street in Glasgow City Centre, while also serving to address the shortage of PBSA beds for the city student population. We look forward to welcoming members to the local community and interested parties in the coming weeks and hearing their thoughts on the updated proposals. That article was by Emma Sabojack. This is from The Herald on Thursday the 16th of March 2023 from the news section. Alcohol duty rises by 10% in budget. This article is written by Tom Gordon. Jeremy Hunt has infuriated the Scotch whisky industry with his first budget, raising alcohol duty by more than 10% against the wishes of Cabinet colleagues. Distillers said the hike was an historic blow that would see three quarters of the cost of an average bottle going to the taxman. Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack admitted he had lobbied against the alcohol change in vain. He said, Did I lobby against it? Yes, I did. Did I lobby against it the last few years successfully? Yes, but this time the lobbying hasn't been successful. Asked if he wanted to apologise to the industry, he said it was a matter of regret that whisky duty was going up, adding, It's not what I wanted for the Scottish industry. The Chancellor confirmed the move as he set out plans to boost the economy and urge more people into work, buoyed by a £25 billion improvement in public finances. Mr Hunt told MPs the Office for Budget Responsibility, OBR, had upgraded its grim forecasts from November and no longer predicted there would be a recession in 2023. Although the economy is set to shrink by 0.2% instead of the 1.4% feared, inflation should fall from 107 to 2.9% this year. With Tory MPs regarding an economic turnaround as their best faint hope to avoid defeat in the general election, Mr Hunt was loudly cheered by his own side. He drew a noisy response from the SNP benches at one point too, after declaring independence is always better than dependence in relation to finding work. As delighted nationalists hooted and jeered, he added unhappily, with some exceptions... In a bid to enlarge the workforce, he announced more free childcare for working parents in England, tighter benefit sanction for those who refuse to take a job, and more help for the disabled and those with health problems to work, without fear of losing benefits. To encourage high earners, notably doctors who took early retirement, back into work, the £1 million lifetime allowance for tax-free pensions was abolished, and the annual allowance raised from £40,000 to £60,000. The childcare changes will not apply in Scotland, but mean more funding for Holyrood, potentially allowing it to follow suit. Despite misgivings among many Tories, Mr Hunt pushed on, with a rise in corporation tax from 19% to 25%, the highest burden as a slice of GDP since it began in 1965. To offset it, he also introduced tax breaks for business investment worth up to £9 billion a year. 
Mr Hunt said the sunnier prospects for the economy were proving the doubters wrong. He said he was tackling the two biggest barriers that stop businesses growing, investment incentives and labour supply, adding, Today we build for the future with inflation down, debt falling and growth up. The declinists are wrong and the optimists are right. But his message was undercut by turmoil in the financial markets over fears of a banking crisis triggering recession. The FTSE 100 fell 3.8%, its biggest one-day drop since Russia invaded Ukraine. European stock exchanges also tumbled, as shares in Credit Suisse slumped by almost a third, forcing the Swiss National Bank to intervene. Markets have been on edge since Silicon Valley Bank collapsed in the US last week. The OBR also said real household disposable income per person would fall by 5.7% over 2022 to 2023 and 2023 to 2024, less than predicted in the autumn, but still the biggest two-year fall since records began almost 70 years ago. It means real living standards will be 0.4% lower in 2027, 2028 than before the pandemic. That article was written by Tom Gordon. This is from The Herald on Thursday the 16th of March 2023 from the news section. Scotland, floating chippy on course for 30 years cooking up a storm. This article is written by Craig Williams. It began as something of a pipe dream for a local toolmaker while he was busy serving fish and chips out of the hatch of a side of a van in Clydebank. Now, three decades on, McMonagall's boat, the world's first and only sail-through fish and chip shop, continues to sail on as one of Scotland's unique tourist attractions. The floating fish and chip restaurant pays homage to Clydebank's special place in the history of Clyde shipbuilding. Docked on the Forth and Clyde Canal, around half a mile from John Brown's shipyard, the 100-tonne vessel had to sail through rough waters before it even opened. The original plans to resemble a mini QE2 were quickly jettisoned after Cunard demanded £100,000 in return, while the finished boat, built in a Campbelltown shipyard, had to be cut into eight pieces to be carried over the last 400 yards to the canal, where it was welded together again at a cost of £20,000. As its 30th anniversary approaches later this year, the man behind the venture, John McMonagall, reminisced to the Herald about how his idea for a floating fish and chip shop became a reality. He said, There was probably a one in a hundred chance of it happening when I started it. I had a fish and chip van. I was born 50 yards away from where the boat is on the banks of the canal. Clydebank is famous for shipbuilding, and we got this idea to build a ship and make it look like the QE2. That was the driving thing initially. I used to drive round the local area and visit the shopping centre, and I always thought it would be cracking to have a mini boat there that looked like the QE2. That was a sort of idea. It would have been a wow factor. If you were going to build a kid-on car, it would be a kid-on Rolls-Royce. You wouldn't build a kid-on Ford Escort. It was amazingly challenging. My father-in-law, who worked as a labourer in Clydebank, remortgaged his house to the tune of £20,000 to help me. 
He'd never seen two grand in his life, never mind twenty grand. And he gave me twenty grand for the idea. When he did that, I knew there was nothing that was going to stop me. He saw the potential that I could get it done. That was absolutely the motivation. After receiving planning permission for the boat, Mr McMonagall said he was also granted permission for a drive-through, but decided to go one better and turn the boat, named Deborah Rose, after his daughter, into the world's first sail-through restaurant, cementing its status as a Scottish tourist attraction. He said, We are a boat and we are a sail-through, the only sail-through in the world. We got permission for a drive-through, but that would have been pandemonium. But I said, what about a sail-through? And that was it. We built a sail-through. Next thing we knew, we were a tourist attraction. When it opened, there was a line of boats queuing up. There was one time when two guys who were steaming came up the canal in a paddling pool. You know, a paddling pool for kids. All the way from Dalmuir. Two miles they travelled along the canal. They came up to the boat, steaming. Two fish suppers, please. That was brilliant. Mr McMonagall spent the first 20 to 25 years working on the boat with his wife before retiring and handing over the reins to his daughter and son-in-law. The continued secret to its success? To him, it's as much the banter as it is the batter. He said, for the first 20 to 25 years, it was done by me and my wife. And then in the last five years, my daughter and her husband have taken it over and won awards. They've carried it on. I could see that when I worked in a fish and chip van, the banter you had with your customers was phenomenal. That sort of banter where you are choking, laughing. I've retired now for five years from the boat, and yet I walk through the restaurant and stop by two or three tables and get talking. It's so approachable. You're not interrupting anybody. The kids are there too. It's such an amazing atmosphere. You can talk to folk about the history of the boat and about Clydebank and what football team you support or whatever. You're always going to get someone that will say, my chips are freezing, but you can see the popularity of it. People in Clydebank love it. They've embraced it amazingly well. Sometimes you think, my God, it's just a chippy. At the end of the day, we are a chippy, but we do brilliantly well. It's a tourist attraction. The popularity of McMonagall's boat, as well as a hundred-year lease, means it is unlikely to set sail from Clydebank any time soon. Despite that, Mr McMonagall said plans are afoot to mark its 30th anniversary this year. He added, we need to do something to celebrate, fireworks or something like that. It's 30 years and we've even had an extension built on the back of it because the original boat wasn't big enough. People know this boat and it's a chippy. That article was written by Craig Williams. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 17th of March 2023. Arts and Entertainments. In Spiral Carpets on Death, Rebirth, No Gallagher in Glasgow Love. By Gabriel McKay, journalist. In November 2016, the man described as the beating heart of the In Spiral Carpets was found dead aged 44. Craig Gill was a founding member of the iconic Manchester band and his funeral drew mourners from across the globe. The band haven't stepped onto a stage since their last gig with Gill in 2015, but will tour the UK next month and release a new singles collection on Friday, with the intention very much to pay tribute to their musical brother. After eight years out of action, keyboard player Clint Boone tells The Herald, 
When Craig died, there was a massive outpouring of love for us and sympathy for the family, but we've not really had a chance to with those people that supported us through that, the audience and the fans. This will be the first time we've been able to be back in the room with them, which will be nice. We'll be celebrating Craig's contribution to the band and the brotherhood we had with him for 30 years, but it's not going to be over the top. There will be some nice visual references to him. The way I see it is those songs that we're doing, every one of them Craig drummed on, so just in that respect, he'll be there with us. Kev, the new drummer, is completely replicating what Craig did. He's got it down to a science. He's replicated every beat Craig created. And Kev was a friend of Craig's too. He was a fan of Craig's. He really looked up to him, so he's completely respectful and in awe of the opportunity he's got to be part of the Inspirals and carry on Craig's work. It'll be emotional getting back out there without Craig. The first time walking on stage without him will be emotional, because since he was 14 he was the drummer behind us in that band. He was 44, so that's 30 years, which is a long time to be with somebody, and then they're suddenly taken away. We intend to celebrate the fact we got to work with him as much as we can, and we'll do our best to make those songs sound as good as they ever did. It's really exciting, I'm getting exactly the same buzz I had in the 80s. I've got the same level of excitement, maybe more. I think with getting older, you really appreciate the moments in time that you get a chance to be part of, like being part of the Manchester scene, the band reforming a couple of times, and I think this next chapter, to me, is going to be as exciting as anything we've ever done. I'm just on top of the world. I'm enjoying the journey of getting everything back together, getting the keyboards back together and learning the songs. We've got no plans at all to make new music just yet, but I'm feeling it in the water that it's going to happen because we've got such great new energy in the band again, because we're so thankful of being back on stage and out on the road. I've got a feeling it will lead to us getting on some new music. We'll see if that happens. I'm excited about the prospect of that if it does happen. When Craig passed away, we were working on some new music which would have become another album, so I think at some point we'll probably finish those recordings off and put those out as a separate project. We were working on quite a few tracks that were the bones of another album, and obviously that gets shelved. If we ever do finish that, it'll be a separate album and a tribute to Craig, because we've got quite a few drums down on it. When you see the ticket sales as fast as they have, it makes me think there's a lot of love out there for the band still. We're very grateful for that, and we'll do our best to give the fans what they want and party with them at the same time. It's happy days all round in the Inspirals camp at the moment. The Inspirals were one of the iconic bands of the Manchester scene of the late 1980s, which also included groups like Happy Mondays, James and the Stone Roses. Those groups, made up of working class northerners, were given the opportunity to experience things which they couldn't have dreamed of in Thatcher's Britain. Boone says, it was a beautiful time to be alive. For me, everything I dreamed about as a kid growing up in the 60s and 70s and wanting to be a pop star, but like a lot of kids, not actually doing anything about it. I didn't learn to play any instruments or anything. I just dreamed about what it would be like to be a pop star. It was when punk happened in 76-77 I realised people like me could be in bands or on top of the pops. It was a dream come true to be part of a band that was suddenly part of a big movement. It went from us having a great garage band that we love being in to suddenly becoming part of this Manchester movement. It was the centre of the universe, that's what it felt like, like everybody in the world was looking at our city and our bands. Our bands, our ba friends bands like the Mondays and the Roses, we couldn't do any wrong. It was a great time, there's a lot of colour in my memories and I feel very thankful that the timing was just right for us as a band and for myself as an individual to be born at the moment I was and to be able to be part of that scene in that part of the world. I just think I'm blessed to have arrived when I did, in terms of being born in Oldham in 1959, 
It just paved the way nicely to be part of that movement. Getting in a plane to go to Japan, Australia, places like Russia and Argentina that you never thought you'd see in your life, and all your wild dreams you'd never have thought you'd go and spend time in Estonia. It was just an incredible journey for five working class people from the north of England that it was just unheard of in my world. Part of the crew travelling the world was Noel Gallagher, who would go on to be the driving force behind Oasis. Boone says he was an integral part of the band, and I'm not just saying that because he went on to become a household name. He was vital to the development of our band in terms of our style or attitude. He really contributed a lot. His spirit rubbed off in us. As a roadie, he'd usually get other people to do all the hard work, which is fine. It's why these venues have luggers or stagehands. So Noel would just get them to do all the hard work. It's fine. The job get done, the gear got set up, and the gigs happened. He was with us for four years, from joining us to leaving us, and in that time, he was with us 90% of the time the band was together. Noel would be with us in the rehearsal room, in the office, on tour, top of the pops, meeting with record companies, we'd have him with us constantly. He'll tell you himself, that's where he learned so much about the industry and how a band operates, how the music industry works. He learned a lot from us and he's still very grateful to this day for us including him in all that. He's still very, very complimentary about the spirals, which is lovely. He was a top geezer back then and still now when I speak to him he's still inspiring, still gets his feet in the ground as far as I can see. Gallagher has written some of the nation's most enduring anthems, but even he can't lay his name to a universal terrace anthem. The Inspirals, as well as hits like Saturn V and She Comes in the Fall, can though, in the shape of This Is How It Feels To Be Lonely. Asked about his song being belted out at football stadiums across the country, Boone replies, It's phenomenal, it takes my breath away. Having been the person who wrote that song in a really down moment, when you write a song like that you don't even know if it will become part of the band's repertoire. You don't know if it's going to be on an album. You don't even imagine it might be a single. We started doing it live and it seemed to really affect people in a universal emotional way because everyone knows what it's like to be lonely. You can connect with that immediately. We put it on the album and at some point decided to release it as a single. It was a very successful record, again in the top 20, but to see the life that song's had across the years, you still hear it on the radio all the time, particularly in Manchester. You hear it in nightclubs. I do a lot of DJing and I don't mind playing it. But to see it go off and become a football anthem as well, as a man who wrote this, that song, it's like my 30-year-old child going out there and having all this fun. I'm not necessarily part of it anymore, I can't control it. It's my 34-year-old baby having a laugh in the football terraces every weekend. Whether it be United, City, Celtic, Rangers, they're all singing it. Leeds United were using it a couple of years ago. I think it was used at the cricket when someone was bowled out. It shows the power of music, that you can write something like that, which is quite a down song if you look at it, the subject matter. Suicide, infidelity, mental health. And for that to become a triumphant terrace anthem, how did that happen? It's incredible. I'm not complaining. I love seeing the journey that it's been on, and I'm sure it's not over yet. It's only a matter of time before it ends up in a big Hollywood film. It was in one of Simon Pegg's ones, brackets, the world's end, close brackets. Saturn V was in Derry Girls. But I think it's only a matter of time before This Is How It Feels will become one of these songs that, I don't know, it'll just transcend everything that it's done so far. As well as their new singles collection, Spiral Carpets are hitting the road in April, playing a show in Glasgow SWG3 on the 13th, before returning to Scotland later in the year for shows in Edinburgh and Infermland. Returning to Glasgow is set to be one of the highlights of the tour, with Boone waxing lyrical about his love of a city he feels is a spiritual cousin of Manchester. He says... Since the first time I went to Glasgow, I've thought this place is so much like Manchester. 
Our first visit there would probably be 1987. We came up with a wedding present to support them, then started doing our own gigs up there. I've always clocked it from the very first time we went up there. Even though these people had this strange accent, it was a bit hard for us to decipher at the beginning. They were our people and the city felt the same. That's never gone away. It still feels like every time we go to Glasgow, we're seeing our brothers and sisters. Ask any Manchester band which is their favourite city outside Manchester and Glasgow is always top of the list. In terms of favourite city to play, best crowd reaction is universally Glasgow and the Barrowlands. That's what people talk about. Our gigs at the Barrowlands back in the day were more memorable than any other moments in our history. In terms of gigging, we had some great live performances, but Glasgow was always the one where we knew we could do no wrong. It was always great, and I'm sure it's going to be great when we get back there in April. By Gabriel McKay. The Herald on the 17th of March and the Voices section. Opinion. If you're a Maxophobic, the new How to Catch a Bus app will help by Alan Simpson. Back in the day, Dick Dastardly and his trusted psychic Muttley illuminated Saturday mornings with their antics taking part in wacky races. The hapless pair tried to cheat to win the road race, which to be fair never actually seemed to finish, before coming a cropper at the hands of another competitor. Such was the success of the cartoon, the pair got a spin-off show called Catch the Pigeon, which involved trying to catch a male-delivering bird, again with no success. Now it appears that Bus Firm First Bus has taken a leaf out of Dick Dastardly's exploits by launching a public information video called How to Catch a Bus on YouTube. First Bus launched the campaign after a survey revealed that one in five Abadonians avoid travelling on the bus due to lack of confidence. So to encourage potential passengers, First Bus has released three adverts with clear information and demonstrations on how to use the bus. To help Granite City's army of amaxophobics overcome their fears, the firm has provided handy tips and videos called How to Catch a Bus, How to Get Off a Bus, and How to Pay Like a Pro in Aberdeen. I'm not sure these is actually such a thing as a professional bus player, but the sentiment is there. The videos conjure up images of Penelope Pitstop thundering down Union Street at the wheel of number 13 bus to Scatterburn being pursued by Dastardly and Muttley with big nets desperately trying and failing to catch the bus. That would certainly be a video worth watching, but might alarm shoppers go about their daily business. According to First Bus's research, around 22% of women and 17% of men reported having low confidence using buses. Only 31% reported being frequent bus users, while 41% said stated they virtually never used the bus in Aberdeen. It was carried out by the polling company YouGov, and around 22% of these surveyed felt they would benefit from a basic guide on how to travel by bus. Duncan Cameron, Managing Director of First Bus Scotland, said, We're keen to ensure that everyone has the confidence to jump on board and use it as their first choice of transport. We understand that if you have not used a bus in years, you might feel a little apprehensive to start. While the survey was carried out in Aberdeen, similar results would no doubt be found in Scotland's other major cities too. But while getting more people onto green buses is a vital part of the country's move towards becoming net zero, providing enough buses for folk who aren't scared of them is already a problem. Experts recently warned that hundreds of bus routes currently face the axe and fares are set to be hiked as Scottish Government fund worth 
an estimated £35 million a year is halted at the end of this month. The end of the COVID recovery backing means that a support budget for its bus services has been cut by 37.1% from £99.4 million to £62.5 million. But there are concerns at the end of the new network support grant, coupled with soaring inflationary pressures, including the rising cost of fuel, energy and wage costs, will see many more cuts. The number of public service buses in Scotland has already slumped by nearly 25% from 4,800 10 years ago to 3,700 last year. Bus operators have also seen an increase in antisocial behaviour since the flagship scheme allowing young Scots to travel for free was launched. There is growing concern among councillors that the scheme could also be behind a rise in youth crime and disorder in towns, city centres and shopping precincts. It is believed that youth disorder in the shopping centre is particularly evident on Friday afternoons, where some schools have finished early. It follows claims made in August last year by a leading Glasgow community campaigner that the bus pass scheme was behind a rise in youth disorder in certain areas of Glasgow city centre. The Young Persons Under 22 Free Bus Travel Scheme began on January 31, 2022, giving all those aged 5 to 21 years old free bus travel. Since then, almost 45 million free bus journeys have been made by under 22s. It is unclear how many of them needed a video to help them get on and off, but once word gets out, millions more youngsters could soon be making the move. I suspect even more would if Dick Dastardly was driving and Penelope Pitstop was collecting the tickets while a pigeon flapped about on the top deck. And that was by Alan Simpson. The Herald on the 17th of March and the Voices section. Opinion. Tory stop the boats bill is nothing but jingoism by Katrina Stewart. The cruel and unusual illegal migration bill has passed its first hurdle in the Commons, despite Labour attempts to block it and despite a firm intervention by Theresa May, who outlined some of the bill's many dreadful flaws. So Ella Braverman stood firm, taking a moment of self-pity in describing the abuse she has suffered for championing this legislation. Legislation that is little more than jingoism made law. Coyly referred to as the Stop the Boats Bill, this legislation was announced only recently and is speed-walking past any due diligence. It's highly unlikely to deter small boats carrying asylum seekers from crossing the English Channel, and so fails its core purpose. The bill pledges that anyone who arrives in the UK by small boat will be detained for 28 days before they are deported, but there's no clear system for processing deportations of the people arriving and limited capacity for detention. The SNP's Alison Thulis gave the numbers. The UK's currently, current detention capacity is 2,286 beds. The number of people crossing in small boats last year was 45,755. The current system's capacity is already not coping. The new system proposed will likely breach human rights laws. And not least, the proposal punish the victims of human trafficking rather than the perpetrators. It is flawed from start to finish, but ultimately this doesn't matter. The Conservatives know they are likely to lose the next election, and so those, these are problems for another time, another place, another party. The trick is to give the illusion of doing something. 
During the Commons debate earlier this week, Braverman accused Labour of preferring open borders. She called this dressing what is extreme political argument in the fake garb of humanitarianism. That is obviously not true. Labour has much made no such extreme political argument. Sir Keir Starmer has challenged this specific bill, yes, but Labour has taken a shift to the right on immigration in recent years. Starmer has criticised government for not stopping small boats, using similar language to that of the Conservatives, talking of the crisis in the Channel. The Tory policy, Braverman said, is profoundly and at heart a humane one. She will not be diverted, she said during the debate by out-of-touch lefties. Out-of-touch lefties? Meanwhile, in North Yorkshire, the Prime Minister strips to his trunks before diving a la Scrooge McDuck into a pool of gold bullion. Okay, not gold bullion, but into a pool of so guzzling of energy that an upgrade to the local grid was required. Nearby, the municipal pool has reduced its hours to make ends meet in the cost-of-living crisis. Out of touch lefties. On immigration, the Tories use the language of war to stir up patriot feelings and urgency, invest, inventing an invasion only they can guard against. Labour is framed as being a soft touch, the party leader lacking the cut through voters needed to reframe the debate. It is no wonder, with this void at the top, that celebrities are able to fill the vacuum. On this issue, it's been Gary Lineker presenting a simple moral position. When the footballer Marcus Rashford spoke out against child poverty, comment pieces abounded about how we'd come to such a sad pass that footballers were providing a more credible opposition to the Tories than actual opposition. This keeps happening. Carol Vorderman recently used her celebrity status to speak out against financial corruption and trending where, for far too long, angels had feared to. She was frank about Michelle Moan's government contracts. Why have Gary Lineker and his peers succeeded where Sakir has failed? The public is paying more attention to footballers and TV presenters than to politicians. In part, it's Starmer's decision to play things safe, to be sensible and plain, and counter the recent popularism that's infected UK politics. A steady hand on the tiller is right, but it hasn't quite earned public trust when the public prefer the relatability of famous faces. This is a flawed enough position to be in, but a flaw within a flaw is the fact of the distraction the celebrity involvement causes. The de debate became about Marcus Rashford and the fitness of footballers to enter political discussion. The issue became about Carol Vorderman and gossip about her friendship with Lady Moan. The illegal migration bill has paled beside headlines focused on the suitability of the BBC's social media policy and the relationships between the broadcaster's management and government which isn't a topic unfit for discussion, but one that robbed focus from the small boats policy and its ills. Thanks to the intensity and the comprehensiveness of the Gary Lineker coverage, I now know that his dog is called Filbert, some neurons not put to best use. All of this allows for the making of bad law. Allegations from the right that their opponents are nothing but pious celebrities and liberal do-gooders. Allegations from the left that their opponents are little more than Nazis. Limited space in the middle to discuss the substance or lack of it 
of legislation. From the SNP and the Conservatives, there's been a shift to prioritising ideology over practical functioning lawmaking, and from the public and press a tendency to be caught up with the ideological squabbles rather than the scrutiny of policy. This crop of Tory lawmakers see everything as transactional relationship. There's no forward thinking or creativity of thought, never mind compassion. They don't prefer to uphold human rights by treating asylum-seeking people compassionately because they don't see any return in it. There is no consideration of the fact that asylum seekers are people who may have skills or expertise, talents that might be nurtured to the benefit of the UK. It's yet another element of the long-running climate of hostility towards asylum seekers and refugees and a real shot in the foot. The illegal migration bill is so short-sighted as to be incompetent, as are those who backed it through the Commons. That was by Katrina Stewart. The Herald on the 17th of March and the Herald Diary. Trade cheers for the ingenious worker by Lorne Jackson. You've got mail. We're discussing the office culture. Malcolm Boyd from Guy used to work at British Leyland in Scotston. One of his colleagues always had a clean desk at finishing time, with his in-tray, out-tray and pending tray all cleared. After a few months, I asked how he managed to complete all his tasks. Every single day, said Malcolm. He replied that he used the system. He then explained that every afternoon he took all his current paperwork and put it into an envelope, which he addressed to himself. He then placed the envelope into the internal mail system. Three days later, the envelope was returned to him for further work. Finances and feathers. The government budget statement was this week, and our readers were always willing to provide much-needed economic analysis. Jennifer MacDonald recalls being a young girl when she first heard a journalist mention the budget on the TV news, and she asked her father what it meant. Says Jennifer, Dad helpfully explained that a budget was the female gender of a budgie. Unfortunately, when I proudly boasted of my in-depth knowledge of current affairs in school the next day, my ignorant teacher felt compelled to vehemently disagree with my wise, wise pronouncements. Quick, quick, slow. Our linguistically limber readers continue translating foreign languages into English. In the 1960s, Jim Hamilton's Latin teacher always attempted to find a Glasgow alternative for Latin phrases. One that I remember is festina lenti, says Jim, which has the unusual meaning of make haste slowly. My teacher translated it into hurry up and take your time. Madcap moniker. Nutty nominative determinism. Doug Morgan reads an article about a murder in the Palms in the 1940s. A key player in the event was the island's chief medic, whose name accurately reflected both his medical eminence and his exotic rural base. He was called Dr. Hugh Quackenbush. Progressive politics. It occurs to reader Keith Sanger that in a previous leadership race focusing on Scottish independence, Robert the Bruce Robert Bruce had to kill a rival. And it's Keith, optimistically, does the fact that today's candidates only slag each other off to demonstrate how much more civilized Scotland is today? Tricky truth. An irritated Karen Browning from Paisley hates the phrase to be perfectly honest. Is it possible to be imperfectly honest? she asks. 
Signal to noise. Wise reader Harry Cook says, Fun fact, you can easily replicate the sound of hitting two coconut shells together simply by riding a horse down a cobbled street. <laughs> that was by Lorne Jackson. The Herald, Monday the 20th of March 2023. News. Anger over deposit return scheme bosses, £300,000 salary. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. The chief executive of the company overseeing Scotland's deposit return scheme, DRS, will take home a staggering £300,000 a year, according to reports. Documents leaked to the Scotland on Sunday newspaper reveal that David Harris and other executives at Circulatory Scotland Limited will receive a combined £670,000 in annual salary and fees. Fergus Ewing, an SMP MSP, who has long been critical of the underfire scheme, told the newspaper the remuneration was outrageous and undeserved. The public will ultimately be the payers for the costs of this scheme, including the salaries of its bosses, with the costs of beverages rising by far more than 20 pence. He continued the payments to the CEO and chair are simply outrageous because the scheme is a disaster and, unless halted, will become a certain catastrophe. Calls to halt the scheme are now coming from every sector of business impacted. Circulatory Scotland has totally failed to understand how the current system of recycling works and perhaps that is because they fail to listen to or even meet those who know most about it. Some major players were not afforded meetings. Others did not get replies to requests to meet. The company is funded by industry rather than the government and ministers say they have no involvement in the recruitment of staff or their pay levels. The DRS, currently due to go live on August the 16th, will see shoppers pay a 20 pence deposit when they buy a drink that comes in a single-use container. They then get their money back when they hand the empty container over at a return point. However, earlier this week it emerged that Circulatory Scotland expects to rake in £57 million a year from the public not returning their containers. In their business case, the company said unredeemed deposits are factored in as one of their revenue streams alongside money they will charge drinks producers each year and earnings from selling recycled drinks bottles. When quizzed about the reports in Holyrood, the minister in charge of the scheme, Lorna Slater, told MSPs that Circulatory Scotland was a not-for-profit company established by industry and that any unredeemed deposits would be reinvested into keeping the costs of running the scheme as low as possible for producers of all sizes across Scotland. She said this model was in line with the best practice seen in other schemes around the world, including the scheme currently being planned by the UK government. A spokesperson for Circulatory Scotland said this information was included in an email to all Circulatory Scotland members. We can confirm that as a private, not-for-profit company, we communicate all senior executive salary information 
to our members and benchmark these against similar posts in the industry. The Deposit Return Scheme is one of the largest environmental infrastructure schemes ever established in the UK and the executive team have been appointed due to their unrivaled expertise in developing and implementing large-scale projects of this nature. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. The Herald, Friday the 17th of March 2023. News. Murrell urged to apologise for SNP's barefaced lies about membership. This article is by Tom Gordon. SNP Chief Executive Peter Murrell has been urged to apologise for barefaced lies and treating Scots with contempt about the party's declining membership numbers. The Scottish Tories said Mr Mumdell, who is married to Nicola Sturgeon, should say sorry to a journalist whose accurate report of a 30,000-person fall was trashed by the party's spin machine. On the 12th of February, the Sunday Mail's John Ferguson reported up to 30,000 SNP members had quit over controversial gender reforms and a lack of progress on independence. At the time, the most up-to-date figures for SNP members was 103,883, the number at 31st December 2021, given in the party's annual accounts. The Sunday Mail story led to the SNP flatly denying a 30,000 drop. A party spokesperson said at the time, the 30,000 figure that was reported is just flat wrong. It's wrong by about 30,000. As the SNP clearly stated when asked, fewer than 300 members have left the party over the period and they have been replaced by the same numbers of new members. This story is both malicious and wholly inaccurate. Fortunately, few people are gullible enough to believe it. SNP media chief Murray Foote, a former Daily Record editor, also rubbished the story on Twitter, calling it drivel and repeating the official denial. However, under pressure to be more transparent about who will vote in its leadership contest, the SNP yesterday revealed its membership was 72,186, or just over 30,000 down on the figure reported in the SNP's accounts. Tory MSP Russell Findlay, a former journalist, today wrote to Mr Mundell urging him to act against those who attacked the reporter and misled the public about membership numbers. He said journalists across Scotland ask tough questions and provide a vital public service, but they have been long treated as the enemy by the SNP. Alex Salmon declared war on the BBC, yet took cash from Putin's propaganda channel. Nicola Sturgeon routinely belittled journalists with personal attacks, and the SNP PR machine now resorts to barefaced lies. Political spin is one thing, but the SNP's willful and arrogant peddling of misinformation to the public is in a different league altogether. The SNP fish is rotting from the head, and at the top of the party are Peter Murrell and Nicola Sturgeon, 
who clearly think it's acceptable to treat Scots with such contempt. If I was an SNP, MSP or party member, I would be furious at this lack of integrity. They too have been deliberately deceived and must know this is completely unacceptable. The SNP has been asked for comment. This article is by Tom Gordon. From the Herald, Sunday 19th of March. Sports section. Fosbury shows it takes a rare individual to alter a sport forever. By Susan Eaglestaff, sports writer. The number of athletes who have truly changed their sport is so small you can count them on one hand. I don't mean athletes who have moved their sport on like Tiger Woods or the Williams sisters or Pelé or Michael Jordan. I mean athletes who truly change the direction of their sport. Dick Fosbury was one of the select few who can claim to have altered their sport forever. And that is why the high jumper's death last week has caused far more ripples than almost any other track and field athlete in history. Fosbury's influence is known, at least on a surface level, by even those who have only a fleeting knowledge of athletics. They have a technique eponymously named as not uncommon in the likes of gymnastics or figure skating, where a new combination or move, often that touch more difficult than what has been done before, is named after the person who first successfully performed it. But for it to happen in athletics is unique. Fosbury is the one and only individual in the sport who's enjoyed the privilege. And that is why he is so remarkable to have had the foresight to take what is standard in your sport, throw it out the window and come up with something that looks completely incongruous to everything that's gone before. It's very unusual, almost unheard of in sporting history. As most know, and as the countless obituaries of Fosbury have detailed, the high jump can be split into pre-Fosbury and post-Fosbury. Until the American came on the scene, high jumpers cleared the bar by scissor kicking over it. But when he emerged in the 1960s and decided to arch his back and curl his legs around the bar to clear it, it was like an alien running the hundred metres backwards. Yet the difference was clear. Fosbury went on from struggling to clear five feet within just a few years, clearing almost six and a half feet. The improvement in his level was astonishing and set him on track to become Olympic champion in 1968. The jump of over 7 feet 4 inches, 2.24 metres, in what was an Olympic record. Despite considerable scepticism in the early days, his technique by this point was well on its way to becoming widely accepted. These days it would be unheard of to see any elite high jumper use a technique other than the Fosbury flop as it became known. The bravery and innovation of creating such a legacy should never be underestimated. The mind of an elite athlete is a funny one. While there's the constant drive to improve, there's also a nagging worry that changing too much technically will be detrimental. There is, after all, a reason why things are done the way they are. Technique in elite athletics differs surprisingly little. Yes, there are small differences and idiosyncrasies that set athletes apart from each other, but in the main, technique is broadly similar. Few disagree about the fundamentals of running efficiently or striking a tennis ball well or throwing far. The same until Fosbury came on the scene. 
was felt about high jumping. It takes someone special to decide that. In fact, there is a better way than the accepted technique. When Fosbury remodeled the high jump, he changed entirely the shape and size of athlete who was likely to excel. The Fosbury flip-flop, by lowering the athlete's centre of gravity, allowed far taller individuals than had previously been the case to jump high. The American was warned repeatedly his technique would not work and that he would likely get injured. Clearly, that turned out to be untrue. If he had listened to those warnings, where would the high jump be now? And so Fosbury proved that for all the sports science and research into elite sport, sometimes gut instinct is the best accelerator of performance. And another thing, there is something about watching sport live that just can't be replicated on TV. It can really give kids the incentive to play a particular sport themselves. And the bigger and better the venue in which they watch it, the greater the impact the experience has on them. Which is why the announcement of Caledonia Gladiators, Scotland's basketball franchise that includes both a men's and women's team, are developing a £20 million five-court arena which will hold 6,000 spectators. It's hugely encouraging news for Scottish sports. With the men's Caledonia Gladiators side currently playing at the Emirates Arena and the women's at the Lagoon in Paisley, the setup is far from ideal. While this new facility is clearly great news for Caledonia Gladiators, specifically in terms of having a permanent base, a world-class facility in which to play, and also the potential to grow their fan base, this is also an extremely significant step for sport in this country. Because the more world-class facilities we have in which to both play and watch sport, and all kinds of sport, the better. That article was by Susan Eaglestaff. From the Herald, Saturday, 18th of March, 2023. Sports section. Scotland 26, Italy 14. Kinghorn's late try earned Six Nations third spot. By David Barnes. A Six Nations which started with a roar at Twickenham eight weeks ago ended on a much less impressive note at Murrayfield yesterday afternoon. But Scotland labouring to a victory which was not as comprehensive as the final scoreline suggests against an Italian side who would not give an inch, but made far too many mistakes with the ball in hand to cause an upset. Blair Kinghorn's third try of the match snatched the bonus point in injury time, securing third place in the final league table for the first time since 2018. It's not a bad outcome when you consider that the world's top two ranked teams were both in this championship. But those heady days of early February when England and Wales were put to the sword seem a long time ago now. Next up for Scotland is their four World Cup warm-up matches, again against Italy, against France twice, and Georgia at the end of July and start of August, before the main event gets underway in September. They have a winning momentum, but don't feel this performance was a major step in the right direction. Scotland coughed up two rock penalties in the middle of the park in the first five minutes, with the first against Duhan van der Meer for holding on. Italy went on for the posts, but Tommaso Allen pulled his effort to the left. With the second against Pierre Schumann for going off his feet, they went for a line-out which established field position from which Allen belatedly nudged the visitors into the lead following a George Turner offside. The Italians will be frustrated that they did not come away from that period of pressure with seven points, 
because a loose pass from Paolo Garbisi to Pierre Bruno killed a clear try-scoring opportunity. Scotland struck back, a period of pressure culminating in a spectacular finish from Van de Meer. He clattered the corner flag under pressure from Paolo Gabrisi, but didn't touch the ground. However, Blair Kinghorn pulled his conversion to the left of the post, and Jack Dempsey then gave away a holding-on penalty at the restart, allowing Allen to restore Italy's lead. The host spent the next 10 minutes camped in Italy's 22, but couldn't crack Italy's heroic defence until Marco Riccioni was sent to the sin bin for collapsing a scrum. Winger Simone Jesse had to give ways so that replacement tighthead Pietro Cesarelli could fill the front row, creating a backline mismatch which Scotland took immediate advantage of. Kinghorn ghosting through midfield the score in the very next play. The host continued to dominate proceedings but couldn't make it count on the scoreboard. They came close in the final play of the half for the busy Van der Meer once again prominent. However, GC managed to get a hand in the way of Kyle Sten's final pass to Ollie Smith. Scotland fired out of the blocks at the start of the second half, and after a period of pressure on the Italian line, they stretched further ahead when Kinghorn rode a double tackle from Sebastian Nigri and Wam Ignacio Brex to claim his second try of the match. But the host failed to kick on from there and in fact played second fiddle for most of the rest of the game. Italy had a chance when scrum half Alexandro Fusco swept past Schumann only to misjudge his pass to Jesse. But there was no mistake just after the R mark when Paulo Garbisi prodded a neat diagonal grubber into the left corner for Alan to score. A schoolboy fumble from Sion Tupelotti and a side entry penalty from Dempsey as he tried to tidy up the mess summed up the general tenor of Scotland's lacklustre second half. Alain slotted the kick to make it a five-point game with 15 minutes to go, which was just a bit too close for comfort. An Ali Price interception of 45 yards streaked downfield livened things up, but that opportunity rather predictably came to nothing. Xander Ferguson penalised several phases later for going off his feet. And Scotland found themselves desperately defending their own line during the final five minutes, twice giving away offside penalties via Dempsey and Cameron Redpath before they caught a break when Giovanni Pedellini knocked on right under the home posts. Then playing a penalty advantage from the scrum, Price shipped the ball via Kinghorn to Van der Meer on the left wing. He rampaged all the way to halfway before offloading back inside for Kinghorn to finish off. It is the second time he has scored a hat-trick against Italy, the previous occasion being in 2019. That article was by David Barnes. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 20th of March 2023. Arts and Entertainments. Highlands. Tanks roll into Glen as Bollywood movie films in Scotland. Exclusive by Craig Williams, reporter. It is considered one of the most beautiful and spectacular glens in all Scotland, a place of peace and tranquillity watched over by the highest peak in the country. Yet the serene surroundings of Glen Nevis at the foot of Ben Nevis have been shattered with the arrival of the atypical sight and sound of tanks, armoured vehicles, gunfire and explosions. Bollywood film crews descended in the Highland Glen for six days to shoot scenes for forthcoming high-octane blockbuster Baddie Me and Chote Me 
With a rumoured budget of £12 million, the much-anticipated movie brings together two of the biggest Bollywood action heroes in Akshay Kumar and Tiger Shroff, alongside fellow stars such as Sunakshi Sina and Prithviraj Sukumaran. Reports in India say the 100-day shoot will see production crews travel across the globe to shoot scenes in locations such as Mumbai, Abu Dhabi, London, the Austrian Alps and Saudi Arabia. Production in Badi Me and Choti Meehan moved to Scotland at the start of this month after filming wrapped in India, with director Ali Abbas Zafar taking to social media to post a behind-the-scenes look at the shoot in Glen Nevis. One image shows the director posing next to a tank being used for filming, while another shows a stunt sequence being filmed in the Glen, showing a large explosion going off next to the tank as it is being pursued by a light military vehicle with a soldier manning a machine gun on top. In the picture, a camera crane stretches out from an SUV is also visible. The Instagram post read, There's nothing more satisfying than shooting real stunts in real location. Guns, tanks, cars and live explosions with world one of the best technical and action crew. The Highland Film Commission expressed its delight in attracting the Bollywood blockbuster to the region and said it was particularly great to see one of our classic Highland landscapes featured in a major production such as Badi Meehan, Choti Meehan. A spokesperson told The Herald, We're delighted to have attracted the Bollywood action comedy blockbuster Badi Meehan, Choti Meehan to film in the iconic Glen Nevis. It's particularly great to see one of our classic Highland landscapes featured in an international production. This really highlights the versatility of the region and wider potential to attract production companies to film here. The Highland Film Commission, run by the Highland Council, assisted the production team by involving local businesses in the community, as well as assisting with the necessary licences for the production to film in the Glen for six days without any issues arising. Bollywood films are some of the most uplifting and visually stunning productions, and our dramatic scenery and mythical heritage is often the perfect backdrop. The industry is also continuing to grow and represents a huge opportunity to attract more visitors from across the world to this area. It is also always exciting to have international productions filming in the region and we can't wait to see the final production when it's released. Scotland's national tourism body Visit Scotland said that Bollywood producers have a real love affair with the country and revealed that its new film guide even has its own dedicated Bollywood section. A Visit Scotland spokesperson said Bollywood filmmakers have a real love affair with Scotland and the country's scenery and landscapes has provided the perfect backdrop for a number of films. Research shows that one in five international visitors have visited a film or TV location in holiday abroad. For many communities, this has brought opportunities to grow the visitor economy with the additional spend from visitors supporting local shops, services and facilities. Our new film guide, set in Scotland, has lots of inspiration for anyone interested in visiting film locations, including a dedicated Bollywood section. Filming in the big-budget blockbuster has taken place in other parts of Scotland, with production crews spotted in Greenock earlier this week filming scenes involving firearms in the town's Clarence Street. Last week also saw a number of streets in Paisley shut off for filming, with the town's Shuttle Street, Browns Lane and George Place transformed by set designers to look like the back alleys in Shanghai, complete with Chinese market stalls, signage and vehicles. Locals reported seeing chase scenes involving guns and knives being filmed at night. A Screen Scotland spokesperson said, As we provided a confidential location service to film and TV productions looking to film in Scotland, we can't unfortunately comment on discussions about specific productions until or unless we're able to. 
That said, Scotland's competitive film and TV funds, world-renowned talent, crews, facilities and locations, and the UK's attractive tax break continue to drive strong international interest in Scotland as a filming destination. Baddie Me and Choti Me and is scheduled for release in December. By Craig Williams. From the Herald, Tuesday the 21st of March 2023, from the news section. Edinburgh Hotels, Haymarket Yards Project Approved. By Ian McConnell. Plans for a major development in Edinburgh, including a nine-storey hotel, have been approved by City of Edinburgh Council. The approved planning application for the mixed-use development at 20 Haymarket Yards, granted subject to conditions, includes the demolition of the low-rise Elgin House office building close to Haymarket Station and the Tramlink. It involves the construction of a sustained mixed-use development. This will comprise a hotel with a ground-floor cafe and a separate modern office building with an associated public realm plaza. The project is being brought forward by Stamford Property Holdings and potential occupiers are now being sought with construction set to commence in 2024. Designed by 7N Architects, the new 10-storey, 183,000 square foot office space and 9-storey hotel with around 197 rooms are being hailed as highly accessible by public transport, reducing car dependency and enhancing and improving the vitality of this area. The office building will have shared internal winter garden spaces and extensive landscape roof terraces, offering amenity space and views south to the Pentland Hills. Stamford Property Holdings' Yuri Goldberg said, Our development will regenerate and intensify a current brownfield site in Edinburgh city centre, meeting a significant demand for a new kind of workspace that is sustainable and enhances the well-being of occupiers designed to be amongst the highest standards of ESG, environmental, social and governance, compliant developments coming forward. Addressing a growing demand for modern office workspaces in this historic city, this will help to retain and create jobs in the city centre. Additionally, our hotel offering serves to address a clear need for bed spaces. This will allow people to work and stay in the city centre, supporting local businesses. This article was by Ian McConnell. From the Herald, Tuesday the 21st of March 2023. From the comments section. HPMAs. We must not delay protecting Scotland's marine life. By Vicky Allen. The Scottish Fishermen's Federation wants a radical rethink to the Scottish Government's plan to designate 10% of our waters highly protected marine areas, HPMA, by 2026. Without such a rethink, says SFF Chief Executive Elspeth MacDonald, the impact on island communities will be catastrophic. It is undoubtedly true that the HPMAs will have a dramatic impact on the fishing industry, if not possibly catastrophic in some places, but it always worries me when people start talking about human communities, which can shift, adapt and even find new work and have long had to do so, in the same way as scientists are now talking about the environment. We hear, for instance, that an HPMA on Tyree, where the area to be designated would pose an, quote, existential threat to the community. The tale that begins to dominate is that the real threat is to human livelihood, 
and the damage to marine ecosystems by the fishing industry is dismissed. It's not that I don't feel sympathy for those whose jobs may be under threat, but it bothers me that in sounding the alarm for them, the concern over the environment gets diluted. Elspeth MacDonald also said the Scottish Government's blue economy plans have been hijacked by the Greens and will push the fishing industry into the red. But the seas and the life within them are part of our life support system and we can't afford to push that into the red. And it's not as if I don't have any skin in the game. News has also emerged of another row over, quotes, insane plans to limit recreational activities such as swimming in the areas. For me, marine health is more important than my freedom to swim anywhere. Naturally, the communities most worried about impact on fishing are those already surrounded by waters that are part of the MPA network, and therefore likely targets, so objections are coming from Tyree, the Outer Hebrides and Shetland. Such was the concern in the Western Isles Comerli Primary Industries Working Group that it declared the community of the Outer Hebrides must take control of our own fisheries. We need to remove the threat of HPMAs, it said, and open discussion with government around devolution of control of our fisheries. The SSF, meanwhile, have put forward their own proposition, which they describe as two carefully designed pilot areas, one inshore and one offshore, that would allow government and stakeholders to work together, learn how to introduce them properly, and plan the data collection and analysis needed to assess their impact. This proposal may sound positive, but it also feels like a delaying tactic, an attempt to keep something closer to the status quo by complicating and diluting. Just last month, we have seen the UK government's proposal of five HPMAs around England reduced to just three. The speed at which we are forging meaningful marine protection, as Professor Callum Roberts pointed out on Radio 4's Today programme, is excruciatingly slow. At this rate of progress, it will take 260 years to get to the level of protection that science says we need. I can't help thinking also that the SFF's proposal would be more convincing if the Federation wasn't so prone to playing down the environmental impact of fishing. If, for instance, it hadn't in 2021 described overfishing as a myth. We are told, for instance, by the SSF that stocks are on an upward sustainability trend. Well, yes, some stocks may be on an upward trend, but not all. The lowest adult population of cod in the west of Scotland was recorded in 2021. As Nick Underdown of Open Seas told me, the claim that fish stocks are all on an upward trend only holds true if you ignore the condition of our inshore and west coast fish populations. Earlier this month, Oceana UK published its latest analysis of data from Global Fishing Watch, and revealed that UK and EU vessels spent over 136 hours appearing to fish in supposedly protected British marine areas in 2022, with at least 7,000 hours involving destructive bottom-toed fishing gear. One way of bolstering protection, not just from trawling but other damages, is an HPMA. We already know that they work. The no-take zone at Lamlash Bay is one such example. Since 2008, no fish or shellfish have been permitted to be taken from the waters and life has flourished. 
The zone has become a nursery for juvenile fish, including cod. King scallop population has risen to 3.7 times what it was in 2013, and lobsters inside the zone produce 5.7 times more eggs than those outside. The real danger is that HPMA has just become another iteration of paper parks, underpoliced and ineffectual, while also banning less damaging fishing practices and unnecessarily restricting leisure activities. As Nick Underdown told me, everyone knows that bottom trawling and scallop dredging is damaging our marine ecosystems and is unsustainable. Something needs to change. Any radical rethink needs nature at its heart. This article was by Vicky Allen from The Herald, Tuesday the 21st of March 2023, from the news section. Nicola Sturgeon said she would argue she was not out of step with the Scottish public around the issues of trans rights and the Gender Recognition Act. Concluding a mammoth day of media rounds on Monday, the outgoing First Minister told Sky News political editor Beth Rigby she had listened to stories from transgender children who told her they wanted to kill themselves due to the stigma, discrimination and recognised for what they are. She said, I think I can sit here and argue I wasn't out of step with the Scottish public on GRA. I've sat in rooms with young trans kids talking to me about wanting to kill themselves because of the stigma and the discrimination and the inability to be recognised for who they are. She added, the threat to women is abusive and predatory men, not trans people. My regret was that I wasn't able to take the debate and the discourse around it into a more rational place. Nicola Sturgeon told Beth Rigby she did not regret her handling of the controversy around Isla Bryson, Andrew Milligan. Miss Sturgeon also asked if she regretted her handling of trans rapist Isla Bryson, a convicted rapist placed in a women's prison. These are tough times, but they are issues fundamentally about human rights, she said. There is no other group in society where we take the behaviour of a tiny minority and use it to deny rights to that group. What gender that person said they were was less important than saying they were a convicted rapist. The fact that they were a convicted rapist should not have been used by anybody as a pretext for denying rights to the wider trans community. She revealed she had received more abuse over the issue than at any other point in her tenure as First Minister. I've had more toxic abuse on this issue, much of it from women claiming to care about women's rights and women's safety, than I have from probably any other issue, she said. All of us need to take a step back and reflect on that. We can disagree, and obviously to disagree, but whether it's on this issue or other issues, we need to learn how to disagree in a way that is civilised and respectful and brings a bit of good faith back into some of these debates. Ms Sturgeon's final week in office has been overshadowed by the resignations of the SNP's Head of Communications, Murray Foote, and her husband, Peter Murrell, as Chief Executive Officer over claims press officers gave journalists misleading information on membership figures. She, <coughs> she acknowledged the party was going through a difficult time, but believes it will emerge stronger. She said at times the election had been a less than edifying process. She said, but the process is fundamentally sound. The party is undefeated electorally. Most of the parties who go through a process like this 
do it after an election defeat. That's not a position the SNP is in. She warned her successor not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and protect the ingredients for the SNP's electoral success. She said, the SNP has had only three leaders in 30 years. It hasn't had to go through this process in a while. We will emerge from this. It doesn't just feel like that now. I readily concede that. We will come out of this stronger. This article was by Jody Harrison. That concludes this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Tune Review and tell your friends about our service.